Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, we're coming back to 1 Corinthians. Welcome back for those of you who might not have been around. Uh, we know it was a holiday weekend last weekend. Uh, we've pretty well covered the gamut of uncomfortable topics recently. Uh, everything from divisions in the church, conflicts between individual people in the church, things that sound familiar, and then things that are less familiar maybe, uh, incest, adultery, sexual immorality, go down the list. It gets uncomfortable. This week's a, a little bit more comfortable but, but disorienting, I think. Today is, is something a little bit new. It, it's unique what Paul is talking about here and the way he's approaching it. And really to say that it's unique is, is probably an understatement. If you've never read this passage, it, it's probably a little shocking to hear because Paul is, is celebrating all at once both singleness and marriage. In the same passage, he's exalting both to some extent. And that's, that's pretty rare. If you've read the Bible, you, you know that in the Old Testament, marriage is considered like the norm. That, that's what's expected for God's people. That's the way it works. Singleness, on the other hand, is portrayed in a, a somewhat negative light. It's not a good thing to be single. It doesn't mean nobody's ever single in the Old Testament. It just means it's not portrayed as something you would want for yourself. In the New Testament, there's a shift, right? Because we have no less than Jesus himself as this model of what singleness can look like. Someone who's given themselves completely to the Lord and yet is modeling singleness, right? And this passage is, is choosing to honor both of those traditions, both of those things that we see in Scripture. But the thing about it is it's not just unique in terms of its scriptural value. It's unique in its cultural value. Now, this is something that, that people in our culture would, would have a hard time making sense of because it's pretty rare to see such an honest evaluation of both marriage and the experience of being single, right? It's pretty rare. Far more often in our culture, singleness is seen wrongly. Right? We, we tend to, and this is true of the church as well, we tend to romanticize and, and celebrate marriage, ignoring its difficult realities, hence the level of divorce that we see so often. Right? We celebrate and romanticize the one, but singleness, on the other hand, we tend to see as this sort of like regretful kind of plight. It happens to the best of us, that sort of thing. It's this sort of thing people are, are very often trying to move through and away from. And our culture copes with the way it portrays singleness and understands singleness by selling singleness to you in this hedonistic way. Singleness is all about pleasure with no strings attached. It's the bachelor, bachelorette experience. Wouldn't you love to have this? And so in essence, singleness is sold to you by our culture as essentially singleness equals freedom. Singleness equals no responsibility. Look at what you have. No one to tell you what to do. You get to pursue and enjoy yourself. It's, it's all just fun, right? That is completely out of touch with reality. We know that. The same thing, I wish it were not so, but the same thing often happens in the church. We've got our own brand of dealing with singleness. If you're single in the church, pretty much all we have to offer you very often is celibate priesthood if you're Catholic, right? There's, there's not much in our tradition that, that celebrates singleness. <clears throat> and so essentially, singleness equals sacrifice in the church. Ouch, right? Nice, 
Way to sell it, right? This is what happens in the church so often. We don't tend to acknowledge the goodness of the single experience, the value of it, what it really is. And Paul here is acknowledging and, and celebrating both of these things as good, right? Either path is a good thing. It's valuable in the life of the church. Paul is, is kind of trying to reorient the way we understand relationships, the way we approach things. He, he recognizes that, that we tend to ask the wrong questions, right? When we're thinking about relationships, it tends to be things like, well, are we compatible, right? Personalities, is this person attractive? Do they make any money? Do they have a decent job? Would we be able to have any sort of future together? These are the questions that concern us very often culturally. That's what we're preoccupied with. And Paul is saying, you're asking the wrong questions. When we think about relationships or, or singleness, when we think about all of these, we lose sight and we're not asking the right questions anymore. For Paul, it's a question of the kingdom. It's a kingdom question always. He keeps coming back to this. He says it outright in verse 29. Maybe you recognize that. He says, what I mean, he just says it plainly. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Time is short. What we're living in, it's, it's short He's thinking of the reality of the kingdom. If you're considering your future, if you're considering what's going to come next for you, what matters is whether singleness or marriage, relationships, whatever it is, is that moving you closer to Jesus or is it moving you further away from him? Very simply, is that inviting you deeper into the experience of the kingdom of God or is it pulling you away from it, keeping you from it? This is what Paul wants you to consider. If it's distracting you from the kingdom, then maybe you ought not to pursue it. Maybe you ought to reconsider. If you know that that's what you need and, and, and you would follow Jesus faithfully as you walk into it, then you should take it seriously. This is what he's doing. Is your relationship moving you toward the kingdom or is it not? As a single person, are the relationships you're cultivating in your life, are they drawing you nearer to Jesus or not? Consider these things. He's asking this kingdom sort of question. Where are you really at? And it's this very honest moment that Paul is having. But before you can even get to that, we have to understand what exactly he means when he says something like, the time is short. What exactly is he talking about? Where is he going with all this? Because I think the first thing that comes to mind is obviously the return of Jesus. Paul believes that, that Jesus is coming soon, right? We get that. And, and I think immediately we all go to this place where we remember that, that one family member, that one crazy friend, that at some point in your life, somebody in your church maybe, who decided they knew when Jesus was coming back. Maybe it was somebody you watched on television and they had this whole timeline drawn out. Whatever it was, you have all those experiences. And we can sit here and we can laugh at all of that, make light of all the times throughout the history of the church when we've made that mistake of assuming we know exactly when Jesus is going to come back. It's just low-hanging fruit. And, and Paul is talking about that and more. Like, if you read Paul anywhere in the New Testament, you'll see it. He is convinced of the nearness, the imminence of Jesus' coming. He says it in Philippians 4, all right. He said, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He says it in, in Romans 13, 12. He's getting at the, the heart of all of this stuff. He says, we are nearer now to our salvation than we were when we first believed. 
We're nearer now to the fulfillment of Jesus' promise than we were when we first came to faith. He's saying every passing day we draw nearer to the reality of the kingdom. Do not forget it, right? That is obvious in Paul's theology and his writing. But he also means it in this different sense, I think. He says the time is short. He's juxtaposing the reality of eternity and the reality of our lives. The kingdom is eternal it is everlasting, and our lives are short, fleeting, and, and, and temporary, right? This is what he's getting at. So Paul's saying this. Why should you evaluate your life and its value based solely upon something so short? Why should you consider something that's passing away only and not consider that eternal, everlasting reality of the coming kingdom? Why are you not orienting your life around that and you're choosing to orient your life just around your circumstance in this present, short, fleeting moment? It's a kingdom question, he's saying. And that's what he means in verses 29 and 30. He says, the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Now that's, a, again, a little disorienting to hear him say this because he's speaking very candidly. Paul's not saying ignore your marriage, ignore your spouse, neglect them completely. It doesn't matter. He's not saying, hey, if you're mourning, pretend like you're happy. He's not saying if you're happy, just recognize you're not actually happy. You just think you're happy. That's not what he's saying. He's saying recognize all of these things for what they really are. Experience them for, for what they really are. Understand them rightly. Appreciate the joys you experience. Celebrate them. Revel in them. Let yourself be fully present in those moments. But do not be fooled, Paul is saying. The joy you're longing for is one that's still coming. That sense within yourself, that thing that draws you toward it, that makes you want to stay there forever, that's something God placed in you. Don't forget it, God. Excuse me, Paul is saying. He says, let yourself mourn, but do so knowing that your mourning is going to be short in reality of this coming kingdom, right? Soon mourning will be undone. It will come untrue. Mourning will not last, he's saying. Understand that in light of the kingdom. Appreciate whatever relationships you may have, whether it's these deep sort of spiritual friendships that you're forming, whether it's marriage, whatever it might be. Appreciate them and know that the intimacy that you're experiencing now is just a shred of the intimacy God intends for his people in the reality of the kingdom that is to come. That's what will really satisfy you, and do not forget it. Whatever level of joy or pleasure you're experiencing, recognize there is something far greater and you have to orient your life around that satisfaction, that hope. This is what Paul wants you to do. It's not just something to help us through difficult seasons of life. It's something to orient everything about our experience around. The kingdom question. We always have to be asking it. So what all this would mean, I think, for us, if you're the person who is convinced you have to be married in order to find joy or fulfillment in life. If you're in a relationship and you're thinking, if it doesn't go there, I don't know what I'll do, right? If you're that person who's convinced you absolutely have to have this, you need this, you need to know that very often the reality of marriage or relationship is that it will leave you, leave you wanting so much more. It will leave you longing for more. 
for this greater joy to come. Over and over again, you'll see it. And if on the other end of the spectrum, I think this happens more often in our culture than it does within the church itself, if you're the person who's decided to sacrifice these deep sort of friendships or relationships or marriage itself because you know that a career and a good salary and accolades would be far more satisfying, if you're that person who uh, believes you're going to find fulfillment there, it's like Paul is saying, whatever level of money or pleasure you manage to attain through your lifestyle, it's going to be short-lived and you cannot forget that cannot orient your life around the short-lived experience. You have to orient around the reality of the kingdom. You will always be craving that eternal joy, that eternal pleasure that is ours in the kingdom. The conversation on relationships, the conversation on sexuality, the conversation on singleness or marriage, Paul wants to orient it all around the kingdom. And we just don't do that very often. He says the time is short. Consider it. Keep the big picture in mind, he's saying. Don't forget that. Paul is he's helping us develop a theology of singleness, and that's really important because in the church right now, pretty much there's a vacuum as regards singleness. There's just nothingness in there for most people. And the church needs to, to, to develop more and more of that. This is partly something we've inherited from the, the Protestant Reformation, right? Shameless plug. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about the Reformation. We've been doing this church history class. If you haven't come, it's all right. Jump in. You're going to want to know about this stuff. It's real important. Little known facts about Martin Luther. He liked to drink a lot of beer. He was a German. Come on, right? He also liked to joke about flatulence. Who doesn't like jokes about flatulence? You're going to enjoy this. Martin Luther is fun. John Calvin is cool. We're going to talk about this, okay? Never mind that. That's tomorrow night, 6.30. The church inherited, the church inherited from the Reformation an emphasis on relationships, on family, on marriage. Why? Because it was a reaction to the Catholic teaching of the celibate priesthood, right? Celibacy is so emphasized in Catholicism, and so early Protestants tended to push against that, right? Priests and pastors were welcomed to marry, it was encouraged, right? And rightly so. It's a good thing. We celebrate that tradition, but very often it has come at the cost of singleness. We celebrate family and marriage at the cost of singleness. I was reading uh, Stanley Hauerwas, something he wrote on all of this, and I, I think it's really helpful. He just says simply, Christianity was the first religion or worldview that held up single adulthood as a viable way of life. If you look at any other worldview, any other religion throughout the history of the world prior to Christianity, they always celebrate family and relationship and marriage, right? It's always been that way. There's a value for that. Singleness, on the other hand, has, has always been portrayed in this sort of negative light. And if you're single, you know the experience. You've had it. You know what it is when somebody asks you how you're doing. And you know what they really mean. No, I'm not dating anyone, right? And then you watch the sidewards glance, the sense of like regret in their eyes. They want you to kind of settle down, right? I get it, Grandma. I understand that I don't have a boyfriend currently, right? Like whatever it might be, right? Like you've experienced this. It happens all the time, and it's happening in the church very often. You've been there, and it was the same way in the Jewish tradition that Jesus came from, that, that Paul came from. It's the same thing. They were experiencing that. 
They value. They had created this very intricate sort of system that allowed for people to get married. All of these arranged marriages, all of these ways that a son or a daughter could be guaranteed to have someone. And if a person should lose their spouse, especially a woman, there was this elaborate system that made possible for a widow to be remarried within that same family, right? They wanted to guarantee that singleness did not become some sort of curse in a person's life that a person could be provided for, taken care of. In the ancient world, it's a completely different sort of scenario. And what turned all of that upside down is the life of Jesus. And ultimately, what we're seeing in this passage is the life of Paul. It's hard to relate to Jesus, let's be honest, right? Because like, like, we always have that, that card. Yeah, he was human, but he was also God. Right? Of course he could do the single life well. Right? Paul, on the other hand, just an ordinary dude, just as broken and flawed as the rest of us. We can relate to Paul, and Paul embraces and celebrates singleness. Singleness, we see here, it can be a choice, it can be embraced, it can be valued. And that's what he's doing here. But I think, honestly, this passage is, is hard to hear. Like, you're like, I get it, Paul, I, I, I hear you. I'm, I'm just not quite there yet. It, it's hard to hear what he says. Like verse 27, he just says outright, hey, listen, if you're not promised anyone, if you're not betrothed, the word virgins, by the way, in that translation is trying to get at the idea of being betrothed or being committed to a person and yet not having fully consummated a marriage yet. You haven't been formally married, right? That's what it's trying to communicate. When he says, if you're not betrothed, don't look for a wife. Just don't bother you don't need to. It's okay, right? The time is short, he's saying. Verse 38, you probably caught that at the very end. He who does not marry does better. The one thing is good, the one who doesn't marry, that single person, they have done better, right? Give yourself a uh, a little round of applause. Feel good about yourself for a minute, right? But it, it's hard to hear because that goes against everything we have ever known culturally. There's something ingrained in us. It goes against everything that we feel so often. But that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to push against the way we normally think about these things. Verse 32, he says, I want you to be free of concern. I don't want you to be burdened. I want you to be free of concern, he says. Paul believes the single life allows for a single-minded kind of devotion. It allows for a person to give themselves completely in a way that maybe they would not be capable of. And that's what he's highlighting about marriage. Marriage is not an easy thing, he's trying to say. But it's hard to hear. Paul says, an unmarried person, a single person, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. And I think most single people read that, and they're like, no, a single person is concerned with how not to remain single. Culturally, that's how it is. They're always having to think about that. They're always having to think about the pressure of all of this. A single person is concerned with curating the perfect online dating profile so as to maximize a certain number of views or interaction with a certain kind of person, right? That's what they're concerned with. I get it. But whether singleness is, is just going to be like the season of life you're passing through on the way to marriage or whether it's something you choose to embrace, it's something God is calling you into, God is using in your life, Regardless, whether it's temporary or this thing you choose to embrace for a lifetime, Paul is saying it has value. Where you are right now as a single person, 
There's value there. Many people in the church, and again, this is the church's fault so often because we've not spoken against it. Many people in the church see singleness as this unfortunate phase. Again, it happens to the best of us. Some of us just have to go through this, that sort of thing. And scripture, especially 1 Corinthians 7, is so helpful because it, it shows us singleness, not as this unfortunate thing that can happen to you, not as something to be wasted. Paul is saying, don't wish away your singleness. Value it, cherish it, see its value, recognize it. And he just is kind of laying out practically for us. And it's a little jarring to hear the way he talks about it. If you're a married person, it's not any easier to listen to, I don't think. But singleness, he's saying, allows for this deeper sort of cultivation of, of friendship, a deeper experience, a more expansive experience of, of spiritual friendships. You know that. Marriage is by all accounts deeply formative, unquestionably. But singleness allows for this more expansive experience of those same kind of formational experiences, right? More friendships, deeper relationships. Every married person you've ever met, if they haven't told you this, they're, they're hiding it from you, they're lying to you if they tell you otherwise, the number of friends you have, it goes down. That's just the reality of being married a lot of times. It happens for so many people. And he's saying not for the single person, right? There's this far broader experience. Being single allows you to pour into the lives of so many more people. We've seen that in our church. We watch it happen. It allows you to pour into people. It allows you to be present in a, a far greater number of lives. Discipleship is less complicated, Paul is saying. If you're single, when God calls you to do a thing, it's, it's very simple for you to just pick up and do it. If you're married, if you have a family, it is, it is a more complicated process. That's just reality. He's just being honest. Single people have this way of modeling for the church what community can look like. Single people have this way of allowing others to see what it looks like to give yourself completely. And not just to one person, but to the whole of the community. To let yourself be present in more than just the life of one person, right? There's this value he, he's assigning here. Paul wants you to consider it. To honestly evaluate your life in light of the kingdom. Honestly consider this. And what he's saying is if you find yourself longing for marriage, don't feel any guilt. Don't feel any level of shame. Pursue it shamelessly. It's good. Recognize that. It's okay. But consider as well this thing you find yourself in as a single person. It should not be wasted. Recognize its value. Don't ignore the freedom you have to pursue the kingdom here and now. This is what, what Paul is getting at. But then there's what he has to say for, for married people, right? He says this to single people. He's valuing singleness. And then he starts talking to married people. And again, the words from married people are not any easier to hear, I don't think. He's offering this very realistic, honest, practical sort of picture. He's just being real. And I think it's important because culturally, we tend to have a very one-dimensional view of marriage. And people in the church, obviously, are shaped by that one-dimensional sort of view. It goes something like this. If you're going to get married, you have to be in love, right? If you fall in love, then you should get married. It is the next logical step. If you're in love with a person, then logically the relationship is moving there or it's going to end, right? That's what's supposed to happen. If you're in love, you get married. It's this sort of, uh, it's like Frank Sinatra. It's love and marriage. It's very simple. It's simplistic and it makes sense to everybody. And 
By the same token, if you're not in love any longer, if you should fall out of love with said person, then you are free of the obligations of marriage. You can just turn loose, let go of it. Scripture has a, a different way of defining the marital relationship, right? It's not love and romance. You will not see that in Scripture as regards marriage. It is far more practical and utilitarian. It's about commitment. It's about covenanting with one another. That's the language Scripture will use. Because as Paul is going to show, marriage is not as idyllic as we've been taught to expect. It's just not. It's just being real. And again, any married person who's being honest with you will tell you this outright. It is not as idyllic as you have imagined it to be. Paul is, is, is laying it all bare for us. It's all out there for us. If you look at verse 32 and 33... Right after he says, I'd like you to be free from concern. He, he tells us an unmarried man is concerned about the affairs of the Lord, right? He juxtaposes that against the, the married person. They're concerned with the world's affairs. A wife is concerned with caring for her husband. A husband is concerned with caring for his wife, and rightly so, right? That is good, Paul is saying. That, that's just how it is. From the beginning, Paul wants you to understand marriage is defined by limitations. There are all of these limitations that are kind of imposed on you when you get married. It's a reality. It exposes our limitations almost immediately. All of my issues, all of my limitations come to the fore. Because in order to love someone well, to give myself completely to a person then that inevitably means I have to sacrifice some other things I love doing. It will come at a cost to some of these other things in my life. Other relationships, hobbies, go down the line, whatever it might be, other things will suffer because I have chosen to give myself completely to this person. I have limitations. I can only give so much of myself. That's the reality. Marriage exposes that. But marriage itself as an institution, it has its own limitations. Think about it. It cannot satisfy us at the level we expect it will. We come into it very optimistic, thinking that this will change absolutely everything. And then we run into some of the same old stuff, the same old longing, the same old inadequacy and insecurity. All of that stuff is still there, right? Marriage itself has its own limitations. Another thing that happens in our culture is we tend to associate not just love and romance with marriage, but sex and marriage. Like culturally, it's almost kind of like, hey, this is a way to pin down sexual fulfillment for the rest of your life, right? It, it's just easy and practical. But everybody who's ever been married knows sex is not easy and it is not perfect. That's just the reality of the thing. And Paul is laying all of this out there for us. It has limitations. We will find ourselves longing for far deeper intimacy than just that. That's the reality. We're all craving an intimacy beyond it. The reality of the kingdom, right? Marriage cannot offer that to you. It is a good thing and it is worth celebrating and we give ourselves completely to it, but it cannot offer you what the kingdom can offer to you. And he's saying you have to orient your life around that. Every married person, no matter how selfless, no matter, excuse me, selfless, no matter how loving they may be, sacrificial in their giving of themselves, regardless, they are flawed and they will fail you, right? We've got limitations. Marriage has limitations. 
And then there's children. Paul doesn't even talk about children. He doesn't even talk about kids. He doesn't even bring that, that stuff up. But he's acknowledging it. I think subtly, quietly, he's getting it. Like that is implied. He expects that the two things are connected, obviously. Kids are a blessing from the Lord. We believe that. We cling to it. And there are so many times where we have to remind ourselves of that in difficult seasons. They are a blessing from the Lord, something to be celebrated. Jesus makes clear children are valuable and good. He puts value on children's lives in a way that very few people in the ancient world would have seen it, right? We recognize that. But children are not easy. Children are difficult in the most beautiful kind of way. That's just the reality of it. Especially, like, it's the middle of the summer, and they're all home from school, and you're just trying to compose one single, rational thought for a sermon. Just one. The TV is on, and all three of them are simultaneously asking you questions, and then the neighbor walks in with his new puppy that he wants everybody to see. You just want one single, rational thought. You need something, right? And yet, for all of that, Paul never once says, it's not worth it. He never gives us that whole ball and chain routine. You got that on your wedding day, maybe. The whole ball and chain routine, it happens every time. It's that old joke, and it's ridiculous. He never gives us that routine. It's not worth it. Abandon ship. Forget it. It's, it's not worth your time. He never says it. Because just like single believers have something to teach the church about community and the giving of oneself to that community, married people have something important to offer, right? Marriage is uniquely suited to reveal the heart of God, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, in the way that we choose to be faithful to husband or wife. In the way that we choose to give ourselves, we're revealing God's heart for his people. We're revealing the kind of intimacy that he longs for with us. We get that. Marriage has a way of, of doing what cannot be done otherwise. Marriage brings children into the church. And again, Jesus emphasizes, if you want to get the kingdom, if you want to understand the kingdom, you need to become like them. Children are like a window into the kingdom of God. And you need to look at their lives if you want to get me and this kingdom I'm establishing, right? Marriage brings children into the church. Marriage teaches us sacrificial, self-giving love like we're seeing on the cross, the love of Christ for his church, like we see it evidently. We ought to in these marriages. Scripture is so fond of marriage imagery. It comes back to it again and again. It cherishes it. That's why John, when he's trying to explain what the kingdom of God is going to look like, the one that Paul believes is so near, he uses a marriage feast, a, a wedding feast, a wedding reception, this celebration of a union that's taking place, a celebration of intimacy. That's what he's using to explain the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will be characterized by that kind of intimacy. Marriage shows us that. It helps us to see it. It helps us recognize it. Not this sort of empty romance that our culture feeds us, but real-life intimacy through the really difficult things and painful things and through the really beautiful things. Regardless, it's showing us this, right? This is what God desires for his people, and marriage makes it clear. And the feast that John is talking about, it, it's so well represented in the table. Paul will say it. 
later in 1 Corinthians. We'll get here. We'll get there eventually. 1 Corinthians 11, he says it. Every time we eat of this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's always a question of the kingdom for Paul. He's always thinking of the reality of this coming kingdom. He's saying every time we eat this meal, we're reminding ourselves the time is short. What you're living through, what you're suffering, what you're celebrating, it is short-lived. And God has something in mind for eternity. Orient your life around that. And when we come to the table, we're orienting our lives around that coming kingdom. We're choosing to look toward it. We're choosing to build our lives around it. We're choosing to have these conversations about sexuality and relationships and singleness and marriage and whatever else in light of the kingdom. That's what he's teaching us. We can't forget it. So as the, the band comes and we move toward it, I think it's important for us to approach the table with all of this in mind, not to come in the sense of like empty custom, this is what we do every week. Like come really considering this. Come choosing to orient your life around what Paul is saying, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is his coming that is constantly in sight that gives us hope, that gives us meaning and understanding, right? Come to the table knowing that. Remember as you come, Paul is not willing to dispose of one or the other of these experiences. He's not willing to tell you, you need to stay single. He's not willing to say, you, you, you need to get married. You should pursue marriage. It's, it's so good. It's valuable, right? He refuses. Obviously, he's biased. He's single, and he's saying, hey, listen, it's better, but you can get married. Marriage is good, Right? He chooses not to force you one way or the other because he knows both are necessary for the church, not just for procreation's sake. Beyond just that, he's saying both are necessary because otherwise the kingdom of God does not ever become fully visible for us. We need both the life of single people and married people to make that obvious. Paul is celebrating it. The church, he's saying, is incomplete without both. And if culturally we fall in line with what we're hearing, the church will not be filled with both. We need to learn to celebrate this, right? And I don't, as you come to the table, I don't, I don't know like, where you find yourselves. Like Some of you guys are married and you're experiencing the reality. It is not idyllic. It's been difficult. Like maybe it's been real difficult lately. And there's this sense that Paul is saying, remember, the time is short. Don't build your relationship around just that, that short temporal circumstance you're living through. Remember the joy of the kingdom. Allow it to introduce joy into your present circumstance. Don't forget it. If you're married and you're filled with joy, you're overwhelmed, you're just exulting in marriage, you can't understand what Paul would be talking about with these troubles of being married. Good. Celebrate it. Value it. Recognize it. But no, it's short and inevitably things will get difficult. So orient your life around this other thing. If you're single and you're sitting here, all you can think is you just need to get to the other side of this thing. You want out completely. I just want you guys to understand, Paul is not trying to help you cope with your singleness. We as a church don't want to help you cope with your singleness. We want to celebrate it. We want you to understand the value you bring to the church don't lose sight of this. This is what he's getting at. 
Both of these things are necessary. Both of these things are valuable and reveal the kingdom completely. So as you come to the table, come considering this thing. Orient your life around the coming kingdom. Ask the kingdom question. Are your relationships pulling you nearer to Jesus, drawing you into the reality of the kingdom, or distracting you from it? This is what Paul wants us to consider. Amen? Let's pray. Father, would you, in these moments, stir within us a deep kind of hope? Would you give us understanding, clarity, as we approach these things in our lives? And may the kingdom shape us completely as a people. May it become visible in our lives. May we ask the right kinds of questions. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.